You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome today to Mosaic Church. My name is Morgan. So glad you're here. I hope wherever you're watching from, you're safe and you're warm. If this is your first time today, I sure hope that it's not your last. And if you're back with us today after being with us last week for the first time, well, welcome back. We're in the middle of a series where, as you may have been able to guess from that video, where we're asking the question, what about? Uh, what about God? What about faith? What about some of the, the big questions people have when it comes to faith and, and spirit? spirituality and belief? What about what those people say or that person said? What about this objection or that objection? We're trying to give you some emotional, cultural, and rational reasons to believe and specifically to believe in the Christian faith. In other words, to the questions, when someone asks, why should I believe? I'm trying to say, not only here's why I think you should believe, But I'm trying to say, here's why I think you should even want to believe at all, because the Christian faith is that good. And that's what I'm aimed at for the most part today. But of course, I am a Christian pastor. You might expect a person like me to say something like that. But if you'll give me some time today, if you give me a chance, I want to try to give you a second uh, emotionally oriented reason to believe right now before we move on to a couple of cultural reasons next and then on into some classically rational reasons to believe. Imagine two people at one house with with a tiny lawn that's equal in size in the front and the back. These two people are two men who are each paid to mow that lawn all day, every day for a year. One mows the front, one mows the back. One of them is told, if you'll do this work, if you'll mow this side all day, every day for a year, we'll pay you. $10,000. But the other man, they tell them, if you'll mow this half of this tiny lawn all day, every day for a year, we'll pay you $10 million. You're thinking, well, that's not bad work. If I could get it right, yeah, it is. Well, well, let's say these, these two men, they take a lunch break. They bump into each other. And the first one said to the second one there, well, I hope you're having fun. But let's say this work, all this mowing the grass every day, single lawn thing every day, it gets pretty old, pretty fast. Doesn't it? I'm thinking about quitting. Well, what's that second man possibly likely going to say in response? He might just say, probably going to say, well, it's not that bad. He's thinking for $10 million, I think I'll be able to make it. Why? Uh, why would, or better yet, how can two people going through the identical thing, identical circumstances for the identical length of time be having two different, fundamentally different experiences? Why would one man be on the verge of quitting while the other is able to push through, yeah, even the unpleasant, difficult parts? Well, here's the, the one word answer to that question. That's what I want to talk about today. The answer, the one word answer to that question is the word Hope, hope, hope about the future is what enables one person to make it while another perhaps can't. Why is this so important? Well, like those two men mowing the lawn shows you, human beings, you and I, we are unavoidably hope-shaped creatures. We function differently now based on whatever hope we have in or about the future. You say, well, Morgan, that's not me. That's not how I roll. I want to tell you, I think it is. I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, been trying to get out of the box of that statement myself, but I'm telling you, you can't. You and I, we 
are unavoidably hope-shaped creatures. And so I want to talk to you today about that, about what hope is, why hope is a kind of a problem for humans, and in the end, what Christianity says about hope. What hope is, why it's actually a problem for us, and again, what the Christian faith says about hope. So here we go. Number one, let's just ask, first of all, what is hope? Let's try to define it. Well, hope is, and this is about the summary of every kind of dictionary definition you can find. Hope is two words, basically, desire plus expectation. Desire plus expectation, as in I have a desire, and if I expect that desire to come to pass, I have a kind of a hope. As in I desire to get paid $10 million for mowing the grass. And if the source telling me that is trustworthy, I expect I will get paid. Therefore, I mow the grass now. My future hope shapes my behavior in the present. Now, if you're here last week, you heard us talk about how every other culture in human history up until ours said there is some kind of meaning in life. Meaning in life can be discovered. It's transcendent. But how we, I talked about how we are the first culture to experiment with the idea that there really isn't such a thing as meaning in life. And in the same way, we really are the first culture in history to say about the future that you shouldn't have any hope. Every other culture is usually based on some kind of faith system has said you can have hope. There's some kind of afterlife. There's Valhalla. Uh, there's uh, Brahma. There's the all soul. There's Nirvana. There's paradise. There's heaven. There's some kind of future bliss available to people somehow, somewhere you can have somehow hope in the future. But again, we're the first ones to say, nope, there's no such thing as a future hope. There's no life beyond this one. When the sun dies, that's it. When you die, you rot. There's nothing beyond now to shape our behavior now. So that means, of course, is whatever you do here now really doesn't matter whether you break a law, whether you step on others. It doesn't really matter whether you love someone, hate someone, suffer well or not. It doesn't really matter. There's no future future and therefore no future hope. We become, by and large, a hopeless society over the last hundred years or so. And you can see this most prominently just by looking at the books and the articles that have been published about the subject of hope. I'll look this up. Since about 1930, books, articles, research on hope have plummeted to an astonishingly low point. And that went on for decades and decades until... Thankfully, just a few years ago, when some thinkers, intellectuals, philosophers began to say, and I noticed this can't be good. The topic, thankfully, has begun to be explored again because whether we like it or not, we all live now based on whatever hope or lack thereof we have in the future. And a lack of hope has just got to affect things like mental health, like our levels of joy, our relationships, how we treat one another. And so even if you don't believe in the Christian faith, and, and I'll put it like this, especially if you don't believe in the Christian faith today, and by the way, thank you for being here. What I want to propose to you today is this. And here's why I think you should at least want Christianity to be true and cons to consider its claims is because of this, is that Christian hope can transform any moment. It's my proposal today. Christian hope can transform any moment. But before we get to why that is, why I think that's true, I want to just push pause here for a long moment and ask you to think about something, maybe to think about something you've never thought about before, which is this number two. I want you to think about why hope is actually a problem, why it's a problem for humans. And here's the problem with hope. The problem with hope is 
We are always getting our hopes up only to see them dashed. Where our hopes are always letting us down. Our hopes are always not coming true. And I know this personally from being a Texas Rangers baseball fan. Yeah, but to prove the point, prove the point here, let me give you five old school hot takes on hope. Five old school hot takes on hope, why hope is a problem. Actually, four of them are old school. One of them's a little newer school, but here we go. First old school hot take, a guy named Horace, Roman poet, said this, no one lives contented. Horace, pretty straight shooter there. Yeah, you say, you know, Horace, what about him? What about her? What about them? What about that? Like that Tom Brady guy, he keeps winning. Horace would say, nope, not even him. He doesn't live contented. Second, American poet Wallace Stevens said this, in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Think about that. He's saying, even when I feel good, you feel good. Even when a desire may be momentarily satisfied, there's still something deeper than that going on that says you're really still not fulfilled. You're not still content. Third, Enrique Ibsen, everybody's favorite Norwegian playwright, wrote this. When you take away the life lie of anyone, they lose all their happiness. What's a life lie? The life lie is this. If you could just get that one thing, if you could just have that one thing, you would be happy. Number four, a few years ago, Oprah Winfrey interviewed someone named Pat O'Brien. You may remember him as a, as a famous celebrity interviewer personality. He was close friends with almost every single A-lister in Hollywood, him, her, them, all of those folks, but his life crashed. And Oprah asked him, why are you and so many other celebrities always struggling so much. He said this, it's fascinating. He said this quote, the thing about fame is that we are people who love to be loved by strangers. We can't get enough. You want more, more, more. The only number you have is more. A lot of celebrities are like that. I can name out of all of Hollywood, maybe 10 really happy ones. What's he saying? He's saying that they got what they hoped for, but achieving, finding, accomplishing their hopes only let them down. Their hope turned out to be no hope at all. But fifth, someone named C.S. Lewis. As usual, he puts it best. Lewis gave a series of radio addresses during World War II. They were turned into a book that you ought to read if you haven't called Mere Christianity. And I'm gonna quote from it here and then come back to the second half of it later. I think it's worth considering. He said this, quote, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. He's saying things in this world offer you hope, but they never quite keep their promise. And someone that influenced Lewis that you, a lot that you may know, Someone named J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, the Lord of the Rings guy. But what you may not know about Tolkien is what helped his books and ideas endure, which was his world-class background in languages and ancient cultures. He, he was a professor at Oxford University of Old Languages, and he spent decades studying ancient cultures and languages and the old stories and legends and myths that all cultures produced. And he wrote a little article about it called 
on fairy stories. You can find it on the internet. The first half is kind of tough to get through, but the second half is worth it if you get there. But he, he asked the question, why are in a day and a time where we are told that there's incontrovertible proof that there is no God, there is no hope, there is no future hope, why do we still keep on producing fantasy literature? The kind of stories that include, and he listed them, these are the kind of qualifications or characteristics of fantasy fairy stories. He said, where people are stepping outside of time, escaping death, experiencing love without parting. There's communication with non-human beings and where we see always the final triumph of good over evil. He asks, even if we know we're taught, we believe these things are impossible. They cannot come to pass. We're told the world isn't like that. Why do we still keep producing those kinds of stories? Now think about it. Think about it. What is the biggest movie in movie history, especially in our culture, in the Western culture, a little movie that you may have heard of. Here it is, <laughs> Avengers Endgame. Yeah, well, what do, you, what do you see in it? All these same elements, the classic elements of fairy tales, ancient myths. You see people stepping outside of time. There's time travel. There's people escaping death. There's people experiencing love without parting. Think about it. What's the last scene in the movie? It's Steve Rogers, Captain America, risking everything to go and be with his beloved for an eternity. Uh, there's lots of communication with non-human beings. And in the end, there is the final triumph of good over evil. Star Wars, Harry Potter, comic book stuff. You shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. This is what people want to see. Cultures have always been producing this. Why? It's because we have, Lewis argues, innate, Tolkien argues, innate desires for these things, for love to last, to know that good triumphs over evil. We long for these things deeply. And yeah, Hollywood can keep on keeping on making gritty, realistic, depressing, dystopian stories. And yeah, those have their place too, for sure. But what do we, all cultures, everywhere, over time, what do we hope for? What do we desire most? In his great book, Whose Religion is Christianity? The great African scholar from Ghana, Lamansana, he asks, among other things, what does it mean to be African? What does it mean to be African? Now, we have a number of Africans here at Mosaic. We love you. And, uh, and they, of course, they know. Because many, if not most Africans, Dr. Sana lays out, have at the heart of their worldview a world full of spirits, supernatural powers, angels, demons, cosmic supernatural warfare are at the heart of the African perspective. And so he, he lays out how when secular European thought began to try to move in Africa, when the worldview that said that there is no God, no communication with spiritual beings, no possible defeat over evil kind of worldview, try to grip African hearts, Sana said that the vast majority of African people considered and then rejected that hopeless worldview and instead embraced specifically the Christian faith. He put it like this. He said, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. There it is, good over evil. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Why did Christianity do this? Because as Dr. Sana points out, it connected to their deepest desires. It offered them a future hope, a hope that transformed, could transform every single moment. I'll come back to that thought here in just a minute. 
But still, for now, you may be saying, Morgan, okay, but yeah, you're right. I've got these hopes. I go home. My hopes are still not being fulfilled, still not come true. My hopes, my desires, my expectations in this life are not being met. What am I going to do about it? Great question. Let's ask the question. What are we going to do about it? And by it, I mean, what are we going to do about the it? About the fact that our deepest desires in this world, if we're honest, can't be satisfied. Well, there's seven quick responses I want to move through. Maybe you'll find yourself in one of these. I'll put it like this. Seven different ways to respond to the it. First response. There are, I'll put them like this. Call these folks the chasers. The chasers. Those who are usually younger, who insist, Morgan, I know you're telling me this. But I don't believe you. I'm going to chase that career to get it. I'm going to chase that education to get it. Chase that girl, that guy to get it. This life is going to satisfy me. I can find it here. Second response is resenters. They're those who go after it. They are sure that it is out there, but they believe that something or someone has kept them from it. And they get really angry at that person or source who they believe is keeping them from it. For example, if you believe it's your parents, kept you from getting it. You may resent. I hate your parents. If you think it's your coworker or your boss kept you from getting it, your, your deepest desire, you may come to, to hate them. If you think it's a societal condition that's kept you from it, you may get involved in the public square, but you'll always be angry. And if you find out that it's you that it's kept you from it, you may hate yourself for making whatever choice or mistake that you made. You're resentful because you're sure that it is out there. It's someone something, maybe you, has kept you from it. Now, let's say you're not a, you're not a chaser or a resenter. You, you've come to find out somehow that it isn't in that thing you were after. What do you do now? Well, you could become a swapper. A swapper, you say, okay, I got the thing that I was after, but I didn't satisfy me. So I'm going to swap out the old for something new. I don't like the old house. I need a, a new house, a new car, the, the new wife, the new husband, the new career, the new church, the new chin, the new nose. That now will satisfy my desires. Or you could become a spiritualer. There are those folks who think, okay, it's not in material things like those shallow swappers think. You know, no, it's, it's it is in more noble, more spiritual things like caring for the poor, going into ministry, like being an activist. And do you, do you wonder why in part people for example, like me, pastors, missionaries, activists can get so lost in their work and then go and blow their lives up. It's because they believed their deepest desire was going to be scratched in helping people because it certainly sounds more noble, sounds better than getting like a new house or a new chin, right? There are the possibly the down your nosers. Those are people who give up sort of the seed of despair here and say, all of you are ridiculous. Look at all the, the eager beavers, the young bucks out there chasing something they can't have. Now, if that's you now, you've just begun to kill the part of your heart that makes you human. And if you don't watch out, sometimes that seed right there goes from bad to worse and you end up as this, as a despairer. Those who say there is no actually it out there anywhere. Maybe you saw on the news recently the incredible story of Drew Robinson, a Major League Baseball player. He, he attempted suicide back about a year ago. He put a bullet through both sides of his head and survived for 20 hours alone until being rescued. And now he's attempting to come back despite losing an eye. But he said this is what would run 
through his head when he despaired. He said, when something would go wrong, I'm like, why is this happening? The voice in my head would answer, well, of course it was happening. That's just how your life goes. You don't get to enjoy these things. As in, there's no it. There's nothing to desire, nothing to look forward to. And that despair led him to a dark place. Seventh, final one. The seventh one here is maybe a little more familiar. These are the letting goers. And this is essentially what Buddhism says. Buddhist faith says your real problem when it comes to desire is that you desire anything at all. Like Yoda said to Anakin, Revenge of the Sith, classic Buddhist thought. You must train yourself to let go of everything you fear to lose. I've crushed Yoda for some of you. He's a Buddhist apparently with a little Taoist mix in there, but that's classic letting go or strategy. Detach your heart from everything. You love your spouse? That's your problem. Detach. You love your children? That's your problem. Detach. You love your nation? Detach. You love your uh, body? Detach. Squash your feelings. You love attachments. You'll be fine. You may be though, I'll tell you this, you may be tranquil, but you'll also have killed the very best parts of you. But unlike Buddhism, which says that one day you and the universe will be one, there's no personality, there's no body to you. Christian hope says that because of the resurrection of Jesus, that you, your body, your personality will last and that the greatest desires that you can have can be, will be, ultimately, permanently, and perpetually fulfilled. What does Christianity say in the end about hope? Number three, let's look. Christianity offers a hope that can transform any moment. I want to show you, try to show you how that works right now. Someone in, uh, in, in the Bible, someone by the name of Saul of Tarsus, history knows him as St. Paul, was once not only a skeptic of Christian faith, you, you may know his story, he was also an activist against it, someone who sought to destroy it. And one day he had a supernatural encounter with the person of Jesus, a person possibly that Paul had met as a young man. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Paul knew that Jesus had been crucified. And Paul knew, like you and I know, that dead men, supposed to stay dead. But this man, Jesus, apparently didn't. And Paul claimed that he had met Jesus alive, personally, supernaturally. And he began, therefore, to spread the Christian faith. And so because of that, not only his own people, the Jewish people, but the Roman Empire began to persecute him and put him on trial for it. In the book of Acts, chapter 24, the book of Acts captures the early Christian church's history. Paul was on trial before a Roman governor named Felix and the Roman Empire's lawyer named Tertullus gets up and charges Paul like this in front of everyone, in front of the court, in front of Felix. He said, we have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Classic lawyer hyperbole there. But he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him by examining him yourself. You'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we're bringing against him. So what did Paul do? How did Paul respond? How did he handle it when he was on and in the trial of his life? He said this, you want to know my defense? Fine. First of all, none of these charges are true. They're all fake. They're all frauds. And you can feel free to interview anyone you'll like. They'll tell you the same. But then he pivoted and said this. He pressed his audience. He said, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope 
in God, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always, he said, to keep my conscience clear before God and man. What's Paul showing you right here? Showing you this. Not only is he showing you Christian hope, he's showing you that it is a credible hope. Why? Here's why. Because Paul's hope in the future, can you see, shaped his behavior in the present. Not only did his hope transform that scary, vulnerable moment on trial for his life, but he acknowledged it shaped his daily behavior, his daily choices. It made him treat his neighbor, he said, with a clear conscience, more love, more respect. Paul didn't detach. Paul didn't despair. Paul dug deep and loved better. Why? Because he saw his deepest desires fulfilled in the resurrection, that he had some kind of hope and, and communication with non-human beings, that there would be a final end of evil and an escape from death. Let me tell you, if you only chase your desires superficially, you'll despair. Oh, but if, like Paul, if you follow them all the way down to see what's underneath them, to see what's at the bottom of them, if you ask, where are these coming from? How can I find fulfillment of these? Let me tell you, you'll find God waiting there for you. So our desires, the seed of them, aren't really bad. That seed isn't bad. Our desires, though, are just unfulfilled pointers to our deepest desire of all an eternity of perfected love, an eternity of perfection. Why? Well, we don't just want a fleeting romance in this life. No, we want love that'll last. We don't just want this world to be all that there is. Oh God, please. No, no, we want communication with the supernatural, beings greater than we. We don't just want our lives to be done when we take our final breath. We want to escape death altogether. We don't just want a better social theory, a better economic policy. No, we want the final triumph of good over evil. We want to know that our paths our own timelines, even though they may be broken, can be undone and put right. And Christianity says, because of the resurrection, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can know all those things for followers of Jesus. Not only can you have, but one day you will have. Now, I know I'm making a claim here. I'm not substantiating just yet about the resurrection. I will come back to it later in this series, like I told you last week. You're getting some of this as we go. It's going to build. Let me tell you this. I don't think that we desire things in this life too much. I think, like St. Augustine says, we desire God too little. We don't necessarily hope in things too much, but we do hope in God too little. Lewis puts it like this. His second half of his study said, creatures aren't born with desires and let, assess, let satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He went on to say to a friend, do fish complain of the sea being wet? Or if they did, would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Then if we complain of time, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. 
Not only are we harried by time, we seem unable, despite a thousand generations, even to get used to it. We're always amazed by it, how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone. Where we cry is the time gone. We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof or at least a powerful suggestion that eternity exists and is our home. You say, well, Morgan, just because something believes something exists, that doesn't mean it exists. And of course you're right. Just because you want or believe a big sweet tea with lemon exists doesn't mean that it does. But the underlying desire, thirst, does prove that drink, beverage, liquid does exist. Now, does a desire for a hope-filled eternity, for a perfect world made for us by God, does that prove God exists? No, no, no. But it is a strong clue. And it was so strong that that clue was the one that led the atheist Lewis out of skepticism and into faith in Jesus. And at first, you may know the story, Lewis rejected this clue that our desires point us to the possibility of a real and future hope. And when his friend Ronald, you may know him as Tolkien, when he pressed him on this, when he said, no man, please honestly wrestle with the reality that the Christian faith lines up with the deepest desires of the human heart. Lewis said, yeah, I can see that. I can see that I'd like it to be true, but the Christian faith is, but lies, though breathed through silver. Lies breathe through silverism. It looks so good. It shines. It's pretty, but it's too good to be true. And Tolkien said, nope. Actually, I don't think he put it like that. He was a British professor. But he said, no, the Christian faith isn't. Isn't just a myth like all the others pointing to an underlying reality. No, no. It is the underlying reality that all myths and stories point to. And even better yet, he said, it's not a myth at all. The person of Jesus, his story, his gospel is all the stories, all the desires come true in human form. And he put it like this, but this story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. If you've ever seen the, the old movie Hook, Steven Spielberg movie Hook, there's this great scene where Wendy, Wendy, yeah, she's older in the movie in this version of it, or old Wendy turns to Peter Pan, who's forgotten who he is. He lives this pointless existence of work upon work. He neglects love and what's important. And, and, and Wendy, who's now old, turns to him and says to him, Peter, don't you remember who you are? And he asks, who am I? And she looks at him and she says this, Peter, all the stories are true. All the stories are true. And her words wake him up. It reminds him of who he really is. Let me tell you, in Jesus, all the stories have become true. And one day, once more, they will come true. And I want to tell you, that is a future hope. That is a hope that can transform any moment, maybe even starting right now. Let me take a moment and pray for you. Bow your heads, if you would, with me. Lord, we just come to you now. We thank you for the future hope that you offer, that you hold out for us. We thank you. Thank you. I thank you that this world is not all that there is, that when we die, it won't be the end you offer us. You've proven to us by the resurrection of Christ, there's a future hope. And I'm praying for us, first of all, for people of faith, people who have called on your name, who are struggling right now, that we would in this moment, even our difficult moment, remember, take hold of that like Paul on trial and in the, in the trial of his life. 
then allow that to shape him, to give him, to give us hope, to give us boldness right now. We would love one another better. And I'm praying, I'm praying for those of us who are here or watching today that maybe haven't taken that step towards faith, that this clue, like it has for others, would help us take one step closer to meeting the one in whom all stories have come true. Thank you for it, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.